Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today is really the conclusion of our series, The Gifts of the Holy Spirit. So we'll be turning in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 to 40, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, For the Sake of God-Honoring Worship. I can't begin to overestimate the importance of spiritual gifts in a small group of Christians. It is at this level that people are encouraged to use their spiritual gifts. The larger the gathering of Christians becomes, the fewer the gifts that are being used. That's simply an undeniable truth. It is this undeniable truth that sometimes leads people to question whether there's any value to a large church gathering since so many of the churches described in the New Testament met in homes, and since the size of the gathering was determined by the size of the homes, to the most part, churches remained small. It is for that reason that many people have suggested that house churches should be the norm today. But that's an oversimplification. Let me review what we actually find in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 16, verse 19, we read about the church that meets in Aquila and Prisca's house. This house church is sending greetings to the church in Corinth. House churches are found everywhere. Here's another example from Colossians 4, verse 15. There Paul writes, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And it is these verses that has led a great many people to assume that house churches are not only the norm, but are mandated by the New Testament. But I think we're getting only half of the picture. When Paul was addressing the elders of the Ephesian church, Acts 20 verse 20 records him as saying, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. See, Paul seems to indicate that there was a difference between teaching the believers in some kind of a public setting and teaching them in various house churches. Indeed, Acts 19 verse 9 tells us the public place was the, was the hall of Tyrannus, which would have been a large open place where the people heard the good news. And if we think about it, that seems to have been the model of the very first Christian church. Acts 3.11 says that the believers, by the thousands, met at Solomon's portico. And yet Acts 2 verse 46 says the believers met day by day, breaking bread in their homes. And so here we see a pattern that, that was later repeated in Ephesus. A large public gathering of believers and then smaller intimate gatherings in homes in which there is also a pattern for Christian fellowship. See, I have thought for some time now that 1 Corinthians 11 verse 22 shows us that this same pattern was, was functioning in the Christian church in Corinth. See, you might remember that the passage is speaking about a development during the sharing of the love feast that, that would have included communion. Some were drinking so much wine there, they were getting drunk. And then Paul then states, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Now, if the meeting that he is describing is a house church meeting, I mean, that comment wouldn't make sense. And so it seems to me that in Corinth, just like in Jerusalem and just like in Ephesus, the church met publicly in some larger building and then also met in small groups throughout the week. That seems to have been the New Testament pattern. And now that we see that, let me get back to my original comment. 
the larger the meeting becomes, the fewer the people who are exercising spiritual gifts. And since that's the case, it seems obvious to me that the best place for all the gifts of the Spirit to be in operation is in the smaller house churches, or or what we might call in our day, home Bible study groups, or something of that nature. You know, today I'm completing the series on spiritual gifts, and we'll be studying 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 to 40. So let's begin with verse 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Now, if I've been reading this rightly, this is the kind of activity that one might expect in the house churches. Paul wants the members of each house church to do so much more than simply attend. Small house churches, or what we might call today small group Bible studies, are to be attended with the full participation of everyone present. Everyone is using their gifts. Notice some were to be prepared with a hymn that was to be sung, or a literal reading of this would be, each one has a psalm. But the implication is that the psalm was either to be sung or to be read publicly. Perhaps one of the members of the group has written the music of the psalm and and teaches it to the entire group. Or perhaps one person feels that, that a given psalm is of great encouragement to the group at that moment and then reads it so that the group is called upon to hear and to meditate on it. I mean, the next activity is that some come to the group prepared to share a lesson. Clearly, this refers to a teaching portion that comes from a text of Scripture. Then Paul mentions a revelation which seems likely to be a prophetic word. Remember, Paul has earlier in verse 25 spoken of the secret of hearts being disclosed. And then he mentions tongues and the interpretation of tongues. See, this can be a time in an intimate setting when the more charismatic gifts can be exercised in that smaller setting. See, reading the text this way, as the activities that would happen in smaller settings, should relieve a lot of anxiety we feel about these gifts in operation. I find nothing in Scripture suggesting that we should use tongues or prophecy in a larger Sunday morning gathering of the church. From my vantage point, people standing during a large gathering of worship, that distracts from the purpose of such a meeting. But in a smaller setting, where people can also exercise the gift of discernment, this is the appropriate place for such gifts to be in operation. So let's move on to verses 27 and 28. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. See, wherever we hear Paul speaking of tongues being used in public, he's always careful to set parameters around it. It's as if he knows its potential for abuse, but he also knows its potential to bless. Notice the parameters. No more than two or three. Don't let your group degenerate into a night of speaking in tongues. You're not there for that. Second, only one at a time. No chaos, instead orderliness. And then third, make sure that each prayer in tongues is being interpreted, and if there is no interpreter, simply refrain. If you're praying in tongues, then simply do so in your mind. Don't open your mouth. But before we move on, I want to go back to a text I've deliberately left off until now. Go back to verse 26. There Paul says, Let all things be done for building up. 
Now consider the first part of that sentence, let all things be done. Make sure you exercise your spiritual gifts in that smaller setting. Do you see what we need to do? We need to go to small groups ready and prepared to contribute. It's not about repeating what happens on Sunday morning where we wait for a preacher to declare the word. There we wait to be taught, but here we may be taught, but we are all to contribute, each using the gifts that God has given us. The person with the gift of hospitality has a place preparing the setting and providing the food. The person with the gift of helps and the gifts of mercy will no doubt follow up on prayer requests, perhaps even phoning people throughout the week. The person with a revelation might point out that that an opportunity for giving is available or for a needy persecuted church somewhere in the world or for an opportunity of service somewhere. The person with musical gifts will lead in preparing worship times. Others have had an important scripture that spoke to them throughout the week and, and they want to take the time to share what they've learned in their own private devotions. Still others with gifts of teaching will share a Bible lesson. On and on it goes as God's people learn to discover how the Holy Spirit is handing out spiritual gifts. So let me ask you, is that what you're presently doing? See, Paul says all things must be done. But in the second half of that verse, Paul adds all things must be done for building up. This is the major activity of the house church to build up. Jude verse 20 says, But you, beloved, building yourself up in the most holy faith. See, every once in a while, I'll hear of a small group using their time for gossip or to criticize the worship on Sunday morning or the sermon or something else. And then when that's all done and when the group meeting is over, they're going to talk about everything from last night's hockey game to the elementary school music program, to the latest issue in national politics. And if that's you, shame on you. You are there to build one another up in the most holy faith. You're to watch out for those who are straying, for those who are broken and hurting, for those who need direction and understanding scripture to provide training for them, to help one another and encourage one another in evangelism. Recently, Joy, who found us online, wrote to say, I came across Back to the Bible Canada by accident, as it was one of the first sites that flashed up in my desperation to find food for my spirit. Since then, my spiritual walk has never been the same. The teaching of Dr. Neufeld has opened up scripture for me in a way that I've longed for for years, but until now, never experienced. Our goal at Back to the Bible Canada is to ensure that people across Canada are provided the same opportunity as joy. Will you help us provide trustworthy Bible teaching to people who are desperate for spiritual food? If you'd like to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, visit backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425. There are forms of worship mentioned in the New Testament that a great many Christians think to be very strange, at least to our ears today. One of those things is found in verses 29 to 33. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. 
For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. But the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Please notice that this is the first time that Paul writes the noun prophets. See, up until this point, he has used the verb to prophesy. And so we're left to ask, what is it that the prophets are saying? See, a great many Bible teachers are going to argue that prophets are simply proclaimers of the Word of God to the church. And if that's correct, then these people are very much like we would think of as a, as a pastor or as a preacher today. But how shall we discover whether or not that's the case? So I suggest we find out by discovering how the New Testament writers use the word prophet and to prophesy. When one reads through the New Testament, it quickly becomes apparent that most of the references to prophets actually refer to Old Testament prophets, and a few of them refer to those prophets who, along with the apostles, wrote the New Testament. And so the vast majority of all references to prophets in the New Testament are those who wrote Scripture, either the Old Testament or adding to the New Testament. There are only two other categories left. One reference is to men like Agabus, who you're going to remember, predicted both a famine in Jerusalem and then later Paul's arrest in Jerusalem. We also find the prophets in Acts 13 verse 1, who speaking through the Spirit said that Paul and Barnabas were to be set aside to do the work of missions. In other words, these prophets spoke to an immediate need, giving a word from the Lord. A second reference to prophets in the New Testament is to false prophets. Well, you're going to remember that Jesus very specifically warned about false prophets who would lead many astray. But one of the references to false prophets is highly instructive. It's found in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. It says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. So in this passage, Peter makes a distinction between the false prophets and the false teachers. And that does seem to be the New Testament pattern. Prophets and teachers refer to different gifts. A prophet has a word from the Lord. A teacher teaches from an established word of God found in Scripture. One is to beware of both false teachers and false prophets. And that's what makes it seem to me that there, that there must be a difference between a teacher or preacher and a prophet. Now, in 1 Corinthians 14, within the context of a small group, a prophet might be given the platform to speak, and he or she gives it in terms of a revelation or a specific word that he or she has received from God. Now, if you're like me, you might see how dangerous this can be. For instance, 2 John is a letter that was written to an elect lady who, as we read through the letter, must have had a house church meeting in her home, and she's being chastised that she was not to allow false teachers to come into her house, which I think means the house church meeting in her house. And that is the problem. If we allow people to have this kind of a free-flowing experience in which house churches have tongues and prophecy and teachings going on, what do we do when things go wrong? But Paul is already way ahead of us on this. He said that the others are called upon to weigh what is being said. And what does he mean to weigh a prophetic word? See, I think it means that there are those who have the gift of discernment. 
See, most often this gift is accompanied by a keen insight into Scripture and a very sure knowledge of the great doctrines of the Christian faith. In short, spiritual leaders are called upon to carefully weigh every word. Notice, no one else is permitted to speak until those with discernment carefully weigh out what's being said. It's only after that that the next one is allowed to speak. And why is that? Well, God is not a God of confusion. How terrible it would be to simply hear words of prophecy and then another without discerning the truthfulness of every word that's being spoken. Now, I have no doubt that the wider church of Corinth would also have duly installed pastors and teachers who would become involved if this matter became problematic. They are given authority over all the house churches serving as as bishops of the smaller meetings. See, the Old Testament gives a great many tests for weighing what a prophet says. If the prophet makes a prediction and it's not true, they're not of the Lord. If they say something not in agreement with Scripture, no one is to listen to them. See, I take it from that that when a prophet speaks, people with solid biblical credentials should carefully examine what's been said. If it's not of the Lord, one would expect the prophet would immediately come under church discipline and be called upon to repent. Now on to the next theme, which is found in verses 33b to verse 35. Paul writes, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, at first, this passage seems confusing. I mean, after all, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, Paul makes it very clear that women can prophesy in church. And since they can prophesy and pray in church, how can he here forbid them from speaking? So let me give you a number of rules of Bible study. First, we are not permitted to cancel out any biblical command simply because we don't agree. And this passage is a command, so it is in effect today. Don't try to get around that. Second, because the Bible is the Word of God, we begin with an assumption that it does not contradict itself. So if in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 5, Paul allows women to speak in church, we therefore assume that whatever he means in verses 34 to 35 of chapter 14, he's not contradicting himself. Women do speak in church and are permitted to do so. The third rule of Bible study looks like this. The context of the passage should determine its meaning. And what's the context? Well, Paul has just been speaking about having key leaders discerning what is said when someone has a word of prophecy. I therefore assume that Paul is saying that he forbids a woman from speaking to the discernment of the prophetic word. He wants this discernment, which deals with doctrinal instruction, to happen from those who have been given authority over the entire church, that is, the lawful pastors and bishops. And if they have questions about what this discernment is all about, they should ask their husbands at home. So so what's the point? I think Paul is here referring to something that he later clarifies in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 to 15, where, where there he gives the qualifications for elders and for those who are pastors. Look again what happens in a small group worship service. First, everyone contributes. Everyone uses their gifts. Second, even though tongues are certainly allowed, one keeps it to just a few words. 
And third, each word of prophecy must be carefully weighed. And finally, spiritual men are encouraged to take the leadership in weighing out the faithful use of gifts. Well, that's good counsel. But what if we don't agree with all of this? What if we have different views on this? Well, let's read to the end of our passage in verses 36 to 40. Or is it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. Let me begin where the passage ends. Notice the first six words in verse 40. But all things should be done. Don't neglect the spiritual gifts. Use your gifts. Celebrate your gifts. Encourage others in their gifts. Your small groups are a pattern for Christian effectiveness. Contribute there to the life of the body. Let all things be done. But with that comes a very clear command. And it's not just Paul's command. This is a command of the Lord. The things he has taught us regarding the use of spiritual gifts are not to be violated. He commands that we obey his commands and not allow the church to descend into a chaos of each person demanding their own rights. You know, many of you have fireplaces in your homes. For some of you, that fireplace never comes on. It's it's just a showpiece. But for others, it does come on, and in your homes, there's a clear, vibrant, burning fire right in your home. But that fire is encased within a fireplace. If the fire is lit on the living room floor, well, it's going to burn your house down. So it is with spiritual gifts. If you don't use them, the fireplace is empty. But if you don't use them in context, you're going to destroy the church. Let's use our gifts to glorify God. John, this speaks right into our culture today. We're all caught up with our own rights, but what God's Word describes is His form and function, His desire, His priority, and we should just follow. Yeah, there ought to be a way to use the spiritual gifts without wounding and making the church sick. And sometimes, because we will not be disciplined by the Word of God, we simply go our own way, and we do our own thing, and we bring the church down on itself. And then in response to that, some of us say, well, let's never allow certain spiritual gifts ever to be used again. And I'm looking for balance in all of that. I think God has a way for his church to be healthy. Thanks so much, John. And join us again tomorrow as John discovers for us 1 Corinthians chapter 16 in a very unique message right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Ephesians Volume 1, Empowered Living, God's Glorious Resources, is your free gift this July. Christ has promised us every spiritual blessing. We were once dead in sin, but now we're alive and have become examples of the incomparable riches of His grace. Yet some of us live in spiritual bankruptcy, while the wealth of heaven is at our disposal. How do we access this true wealth? We hear about others who have, but we don't know how to achieve it for ourselves. If you feel the struggle, I have good news. We've been given the book of Ephesians, which provides us the tools for empowered living. This month, 
we're making Dr. John's series on Ephesians Empowered Living Volume 1 available digitally or on CD free during July. To get your copy, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.